the big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The Big Silence. Hello and welcome to the Big Silence podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go! Mental health is my wealth, the stress upon the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seek and ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose, so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence. The big silence. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Big Silence Podcast. It's your host, Karina Dawn. Shout out to all of you who listen and share these podcasts with many, many friends and loved ones and making us the number one mental health and self-development pod. I am sitting here back in Texas and Austin, a big exciting week at my house this week. I am hosting a friend's wedding, which I'm really excited about. It's um, Lindsay Morgan. If you haven't listened to her podcast on The Big Silence, definitely go listen to that. She's just such a beautiful, beautiful human. Been through a lot um, and has really driven, 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 <laughs> dove deep into her um, mental health journey. And also this month, I'm Tone It Up. I'm co-founder of Tone It Up, if you don't already know that. Uh, we are launching our Power Up Challenge, which launches October 2nd. Make sure you go to toneitup.com slash power up to sign up for the challenge. I really love this one. So when I was creating it, I wanted to just feel really strong. Women are so powerful and strong and we take our fitness that we do on the mat and we take it out into the world. So this whole power up journey is to become even stronger together and uh, feel good. You know, I work out for my mental health. Um, we all are on a different fitness journey. Our bodies change all the time as, you know, mine has. Um, I'm proud. I'm 42 and feeling great. Um, I know I've I've received some comments on, you know, Karina, you don't look like you did in 2017. And I'm like, no, no, I don't. But I look great and I feel great uh, in my, my fitness journey now. And I, I work out. I move my body every day. In some way, whether it's a walk in nature, a tone it up app workout, going to the gym and working out with my girlfriends. So 
point of that is power up with me October 2nd. We are launching it as four weeks, 25 workouts in 30 days. See you there. Tonerup.com slash power up. Also this month, Suicide Prevention Month. We are doing a fundraiser at The Big Silence. So link is in the show notes. Uh, this is one of my favorite programs that we do is Therapy for All, where we sponsor therapy. A lot of times health insurance doesn't cover therapy or therapists don't accept health insurance. And therapy is something that has helped me through so much in my life. And I want to make sure, you know, with the big silence, the conversations we don't want to have, uh, we need to end the stigma around therapy. I remember actually when I was in my early 20s and I first wanted to get into therapy and I was dating someone and he was like, well, therapy is for crazy people. And I was like, no, therapy is for people who want to do the work. That was where the stigma was back then. Um, so help support us, help other people. Even $5 towards the program it helps so many. So link is on um, in the show notes as well. And today's guest is Snake. He's best known for the guitarist of one of the longest and largest heavy metal bands, Skid Row. He co-founded the band in 1986, and he co-writes many of the songs, including their biggest hit, which is 18 Alive. And currently, he is out on tour. So my friend Eric Baker, he introduced me to Snake, one of the nicest guys. His mental health journey and his music and what he's putting out there and his his journey. Like I'm just excited to share this conversation. Snake, shout out to you. You are awesome and have a great tour. Snake is here. Number one, where did Snake come from? Man, it was given to me when I was like 12 years old. We used to sit there and go up. Uh, the, there's a ton of kids in my neighborhood that were all kind of the same age, maybe a couple years older. And uh, we used to go play basketball uh, during the summertime. It was like shirts versus skins. Uh, so one day I was a skin and uh, someone noticed that I had this one chest hair coming out of my chest that was really long. And that one person happened to be Mr. John Bon Jovi. And he oh. goes, we grew up together. So he goes, ew, that looks like that's gross. Get rid of that. I'm like, no, man, it's my first of becoming a man. It's my first chest hair. He goes, gross. It looks like a snake. I'm like, whatever, dude. And uh, he calls, started calling me snake since that point on. And it stuck. And then... As we got older, and he always just kept calling me Snake, and it, obviously other people started calling me the same thing. And I realized as I was getting in 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 bands and you know starting to play out and stuff like that, it was a name that was very memorable. Uh, that people would go, okay, like I remember that name. I don't remember you know Steve's name, but I remember Snake. <laughs> And so I kept it. I, I mean, I like it. I think if Thank I you. if I had an animal name, it would be bear. Mm. My 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 dad named me that when I was a little kid. I was bear. <laughs> Just because I was we would like go camping and I would be outside tents and be like, Rawr. 
And but anyway, oh, that's like, funny. <laughs> yeah. So. See now, what's interesting with me is like I, I'm. I don't hate snakes, but I'm not a fan of them. It's not like I have, uh, you know, it's not like I have 16 of them underneath a, a stairwell in my, like, slash or something like that, you know? I'm not a big snake guy. I never owned one, didn't want to own one, but somehow I'm uh, beholden to the name. Wow. I love it. And all right. So you are about to embark on a tour. Yes. And you've been a rock star since the 80s. I've been a guitar player since the 80s. I don't know about a rock star. You're a but... rock star. I was actually just listening to some of your music before I came up to the studio with Bobby, my husband. He's like, you know this song? He, my husband was like rocking out to your music. But Oh, that's cool. Let's talk about Little Snake before we get into, I'm going to call you a rock star because I think you are. <laughs> You're the one. <laughs> no. Where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? And what led you to music? My childhood, I grew up in a little town called Sarahville, New Jersey, um, which is about 30 minutes north of Asbury Park, 20 minutes southeast of Rutgers University, and about 50, 45, 50 minutes south of New York City, uh, if you take the train. You know, I grew up in a, I was born in the, uh, in the 60s. And so that's, you know, the tail end of the baby boomers. And uh, so there was a lot of people in our neighborhood that um, were around the same age as me and, and, uh, or a little bit older, but I have four older brothers and my dad wasn't around. My dad kind of left when I was two, he'd show up every Christmas, maybe sometimes once in the summer. My mother and him never got a divorce. Uh, my mom believed in the sanctity of marriage as, as uh, Roman Catholics from that era did. Uh, so she was she was really uh, sticking to the for better or for worse. Um, and unfortunately, it was for her, I, I believe it was for worse, but for me, um, I was, uh, as I later on in life, I realized how lucky I was to be uh, raised by my mom and, and my, and my brothers. Um, and, uh, it taught me a lot of things that, uh, that maybe my hardened old man wouldn't have been able to teach me. So I was really, and really thankful for that. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, um, I guess I didn't realize it was a good thing until I became an adult. When I started understanding the uh, that it wasn't normal, like that everybody else's uh, everybody else's families were intact, at least in our neighborhood, that I and mine wasn't, and so I was given all these reasons by my brothers why he wasn't there, and they were all trying to just protect me. And the truth of the matter was that he just, he didn't want to be my mom's husband anymore. He didn't want to be our dad anymore. So when you were a kid, you had had a diagnosis as a child. Right? It, well, yeah, I, as a child, yes, I did. Uh, and that's, in, again, I want to point out, this is in 60s, 70s, 
before, yeah, 70s when you had a diagnosis. And I'm, I always talk about how I grew up in the 90s and had no clue about this. So walk me through what that was like and how you were, you know, you were diagnosed manic depressive, bipolar, one or two, like even as a kid, right? Yeah. My house was always full of music. And this is going back to your previous question. So I had a most amazing experience, uh, learning experience, education, if you will, music education through uh, the music that my mom and my brothers played. And it was everything that ranged from Elvis and even like the Andrew sisters and Sinatra uh, to Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and uh, and then the Beatles and the, all the Leslie Gore and the the seventy the sixties pop hits and Motown was huge and the Beach Boys and then going into the seventies where you know the post Woodstock era and I was I had all of this every day it was amazing because there was no genres there was no uh, this is metal and that's crap it wasn't anything like that it's like this is music. Either you loved it, you could love the Eagles as much as you loved Black Sabbath. There was no judgments. I love that. Uh, but what I, what started happening was is that you know I started realizing that you know my dad wasn't around. I kind of had me questioning things, and and then when I was about seven, my brother who was raising me got drafted to Vietnam, and that was really really difficult that because I was watching the guy that I was most attached to. That was my hero that I looked up to. He was being taken away. And the only thing I knew is that he was going to a place where a lot of people were being killed. And I do remember seeing like Walter Cronkite on, on the news and, and TV uh, uh, showing body bags of dead soldiers. I remember that vividly. And I was like, Oh my God, that's where I, my brother's going. So I started wrestling with this abandonment stuff without knowing that's what it was. And, and looking back on it and having done you know therapy and, and research and stuff, I started, I didn't ask any questions like, why isn't dad around? Because I, the answer I got, I guess inherently I knew wasn't the truth. Uh, so my dad leaves. Maybe it's because of me, because he raised all my other brothers. My brother Rick leaves to go to Vietnam. Well, maybe it's because of me because he didn't leave any of the other brothers. So I start formulating this reasoning in my brain. And the more things happen, little things, I start relating it to me being the cause of it. Uh, my mother has to go to work and clean houses. She's not home when I get home from school. It's my fault. Like, I must be the reason that she's not here. And no one is telling me differently. So at a very early age, I'm building this repetitive behavior in my head. I'm the one. It's, it's all my fault. It's yeah. becoming like the ABCs. I keep repeating it. It becomes truth. Uh, and it becomes second nature. So as I'm going through my life, every time something happened that was in and of itself was nothing. I would place the blame on myself. It's my fault. So I started having this very uh, low opinion 
of me that uh, I couldn't escape. So instead of, and I wouldn't ask questions because like from an emotional standpoint back then, you didn't ask questions about emotional well-being. You didn't sit there. I mean, when you're an infant or, or a toddler, I'm sad because I don't have candy. You know, it's like, but as you're growing older, you don't, you don't, it's not about, you got nothing to be sad about. Get over it. You know, yeah. that, that's the mentality. That's the mentality. We're going to work through that because I've heard the get over it thing many times and we are changing that <laughs> narrative. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that, to me that was that was the first in a long line of bad reasoning, and uh, and and um, for myself. So it was instilled to me that you're supposed to get over it. Okay, well, that's what I'm supposed to do, so I will. And I failed over and over and over. And as the more I failed, the more my self esteem decreased. The more I looked at myself as not worth what uh i was maybe a week before a month before not that i was gauging it but i could feel my my outlook on myself diminishing to the point where uh i must not be lovable like the, i'm i'm coming up with these answers in my head i'm how, forming yeah, yeah and you're a young kid and like how do you even no, and I think it's so important too. And as you tell us, you know, walk us through this period of your life and maybe even sharing like, what do we need to teach our youth to feel loved? To me, uh, the most important thing is to talk, to communicate. That's the biggest thing. And that didn't happen for me uh, for a while. And then by the time I was able to communicate any of this, I was more. I was acting out and then someone noticed there's an issue. Um, I started, uh, I remember cutting myself for the first time on my arm in my parent, my mom's garage um, and kind of understanding why I was doing it. It was an impulse, but it was also like, it. I come to find out later, it was more defined as me being, felt I needed to be punished for who I am. Like I needed to feel like I was being punished because of the person I was needed to be punished. That's so interesting. So I talk about this in my memoir and I also cut as a, a teenager. And I think for me, it was almost just feeling alive and present and seen. Like I and and control, and so I think from for different people, like why are you doing this? Um, you know, from eating disorders to cutting to this and that and acting out. It's just that it it is a a cry for help and to be seen. Without a doubt, and and what's interesting is when I did it, I was more like saying to myself, "You're an asshole," and cut myself. And and then hiding it because you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> so it's it's a really confusing uh, uh, catch twenty two. 
that that year that I find myself caught in. And and I didn't it wasn't that I cut every day. I didn't do that. But I would cut myself or I would do something else to inflict some sort of pain or punishment on myself. When the feeling built up of not being uh, worthy or not being loved uh, or lovable, uh, that would result in me doing something like either cutting myself or doing something reckless and getting in like a bike accident or something like that, you know, like trying to jump a swamp or something, you know, like, like something that I knew would probably not turn out well. Yeah. Isn't it so interesting? Cause we're from different generations and generations behind us and ahead of us. And uh, how like this, and you don't have to have an answer for this at all. I'm just thinking in my head, how cutting has been around for decades and how is that in our generational trauma that we no one tells us what this is but it's something that's there like in the human mind and again you don't have to have an answer for it i'm just like wow no, no, this I, been- I, I i can relate to that though that was the biggest the conundrum was there were no answers like i couldn't I was too young to understand the complexity of what I was experiencing. Um, I, I didn't have the the brain cells yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. All I knew was everything was uh, everything was coming across as black and white, and I was left to form my own decisions uh, and reasonings. And so, you know, part of the problem again is. That generation taught us that you could talk about a sprained ankle and you could talk about a broken finger, but you can't talk about something that's going on with your brain. It doesn't because that makes you crazy. And we don't have crazy people in this house because it's an embarrassment. And if it's an embarrassment, I'm not going to be embarrassed by your craziness. You know, so it's all kept silent. So having that being underlying sort of uh, a family dynamic. I never said a word to anybody for with the exception. And I didn't even really say anything to the, to the child psychologist that I met with. Uh, I only ever really started saying something was I was in my mid thirties, maybe. Oh, okay. That's the same as me. I'd, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, I would say. Me right. having this, there's such a weird thing that goes on too. You feel worthless, but you feel like you have this superhero ability to overcome it. I, I mean, I, you can't be at more opposite ends of the spectrum. And, and that's kind of, I, I guess I felt that I could overcome it or live with it. Because there wasn't any other options for me that I knew of. Like, all I knew of was electroshock therapy. You know, that's that was a reality when I was a kid. Yeah. But even with you, as a child growing up, and you go back and, I, and you know, we talk about, we've 
talked a little bit about your diagnosis, but um, going back, and we talked about this before, about my dad, uh, my grandma was pregnant with him when they were immigrating and going through just the trauma of getting over from the Ukraine and then Germany and over to the U.S. But your mom also attempted suicide while she was pregnant with you. And think about the, the trauma that you already had before birth. And that's a thing. Like, yeah, that it's yeah. a very real thing for yeah. sure. Uh, and the causes and the uh, effects of that, you don't, I didn't, I shouldn't say you or anybody else. I didn't come to realize until I was in my 40s. Like, when my mom finally, <laughs> excuse me. No, I was in my 30s, excuse me, my late 30s. When my mom, my mom finally came clean and told me about this. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, that's that's really unreal. And then they tell me that, yeah, and she saw her father at age five, age six, commit suicide right in front of her. It's like. It's, Man, that's gonna that's gonna that effect of that is gonna have a ripple effect that's gonna go on for a long time. Generational trauma. So you see where it is. You already experienced trauma before you were even on the other side of mama's womb. And uh so now like when you study and understand this, you're like, oh, okay, because it is a lot of traumas that can trigger mental illness, mental health issues, depression, this. And it's, you know, I think that's so important to educate our children now of what they may be feeling, how generational trauma is in ourselves, and then how do we work through it? And then realizing, like, it's okay. This is this is life. A diagnosis is not an end-all. It's a superpower. And, yeah. The thing for me that I had to learn I should say I had to learn it, but it, it by learning it made all the difference in the world was getting over the stigma of silence. Hence, you know, your podcast. Um, that was, uh, that was huge. Um, because I was basically a liar for uh, more than half my life. And uh, so creating i created another character if you will to like i wasn't the guy that got molested when he was 12 years old that happened to somebody else i'm the guy who saw it and i feel terrible for that guy that it happened to but it wasn't me and that made it livable it made it so i could go on have you because talked in therapy about that? I have in the past, yes. Yeah. I have in the past. That's significant. And very much so. And I knew I like look, being I knew that that was huge. Like that was, but <coughs> excuse me, the fear of exposing myself to that act was far more overwhelming to me than anything else. So I chose to create, like I said, a different character. This guy is always smiling. This guy is always telling jokes. This guy that loves sports, that loves music, that'll do anything for everybody. Uh, put himself, 
second to everybody else. Um, and there was a lot of really, there is a lot of good in a lot of that, that I've kept that I guess was already embedded inside of me, but there was no one knew what was going on. I, there was an instance in high school where I started acting out. Um, I was really, really lucky that I did well in school and I didn't, I mean, I had to work at it, but I didn't have to work extremely hard at it. And so after, like, after I discovered that I wanted to do music, which I was around 14 and a half years old, I quit all sports because that's what that was one of the things that ingratiated me to my family was that I was pretty good in sports and and everyone thought that I had this career mapped out. <clears throat> so when I came home after seeing Kiss at Madison Square Garden and saying, well, I ain't going to college and I ain't playing sports. And at that time, I'm 13. And they're like, uh, what? And no one believed me. Like, how you're 13 years old. How can you know what you're going to do? I'm like, man, I know what I'm going to do. It's going to be music. I don't know what, but it's going to be music. So cut to a year later, I realized that it's the guitar. And I'm like, I find this guitar. John, who lived up the street from me, had already been playing. So uh that was inspiring and he taught me some stuff and when you say just, john are you talking about john uh, bon jovi. Bon jovi. okay just casual yeah. you're like john Clowley's <laughs> <John. laughs> one of my best buds and i'm like the only one that doesn't treat him besides his family like the rest of the world uh but he uh he had been you know he lived three streets away from me and and we have known each other for a few years at that point and we're buddies. And so he started showing me some chords and it came really, really easily to me. Uh, and so he turned me on to his teacher who lived across the street. And, and I just knew like this was it. I was giving up sports. I was dedicating myself to this and I was going to isolate myself. And I did. I isolated myself in my, my bedroom. And that's when people started wondering if anything's wrong. And I'm like, no. I'm just, I love this guitar so much. It's it's an ex, It's a thing that I can use to express myself that I don't know how to do verbally, I could do it through this amazing instrument. Um, and it was one of the things that when I'd be lying in my room and I'd be really, really depressed. And, and, uh, uh, I guess, uh, I guess there were suicidal thoughts at that point, not to the degree of any sort of acting upon them, but definitely dark thoughts. Uh, everything I would write, would be like this forlorn sort of subject matter. Uh, the lack of, of being lovable, the lack of being worthy. All these little stupid things I wrote were, that was the theme. And But I loved that I could express myself through this instrument. And uh, so as I isolated myself, I, my... My social identity was no longer existent. I was no longer the guy that would hang out and crack jokes and, you know, throw keg parties in the woods and things like that. And I, I was kind of disappearing. And that's when I started, uh, started acting out a little bit. I can remember being 
a junior in high school and, and being in English class. And when I stopped playing sports, I got ostracized from all the jocks. Uh, and the dirtbags wanted nothing to do with me because I was a jock. So I was kind of left in this limbo, this uh, zone of... of uh, Just a loner. Loner now. Yeah, where where yeah. do you belong? Who are you? Yeah. What are, yeah. yeah. Uh, now I still had, you know, like my, my older friends, like, like John and, and those guys, but, uh, like my close circle of friends were, were kind of gone. And so wrestling with these feelings of inadequacy and, and, and worthlessness. And I'm in English class and the English teacher was a really cool teacher. She was very, um, supportive of me, of my, of my writing. She liked the way that I wrote, uh, but we had this thing where we, I guess we were debating a book and then two class sides of the class split up and one side was facing the other side. And so it was this big book and we're going back and forth and I'm not engaged at all. And I have this big book and, and there was a guy that was a friend of mine who I played sports with. Well, my family knew as well. My mom knew his mother and father. Uh, and we were friends and until we weren't, and he said something really sarcastic to me because I, I was aloof, I guess. I don't know. I just wasn't a part of that thing. And without anything, I stood up and grabbed my book, this big ass book and whipped it right out of his head, walked out of the door and walked out of school and started walking home. And my teacher called up Dr. Berkham, who was a child psychologist. And I had met with him a couple of times at the behest. And now I'm starting to get the timeline straight at the behest of a, a guidance counselor who was really good friends with my family. And so I met with him a couple of times and, and he pulls over and I'll never forget. He was driving a Brown 280 Z and uh, pulled up to, there's a long sidewalk along the road. And he's like, uh, you need a ride. I go, I'm not going back to school. He goes, no, I'll give you a ride home. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know? And in the car we talked and, uh, he said, what's going on? And I, I, I gave him as much information as I possibly could. I didn't divulge a whole hell of a lot, nothing about cutting or the dark thoughts that I had or anything like that. But when next time we got back into, I had like a, went to his office at the school which was maybe a week or a few days after. I can't remember. We sat down and, and he goes, judging from what some of your teachers are telling me and the way that you are, I, I think you, you know, have some sort of depression and me, I'm going, duh, you know, like, yeah, I don't know what it is, but yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty sad. So even back then then what they say oh you have some sort of depression do they dive in and say what's going on at home what's going on in your life yes what yeah yep a little bit i mean uh i certainly didn't come clean about being molested that that wouldn't no one would know about that for a long long time and i only touched a little bit on like i didn't at that point I was going through so many uh, changes with how I felt regarding my dad's situation and 
you know, I, by that point, my brother had gotten home from Vietnam, but he was a different person. And so our relationship was completely different. Again, my fault. So there wasn't a lot of in-depth stuff. And again, like I said, the, 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 the only treatment I knew for crazy people was, you know, uh, electroshock therapy is what I saw on TV. And I knew about lobotomies and things like that. And they scared the daylights out of me. So my whole fear was, my logic is, well, I'm not going to give them enough information for them to prescribe me that, you know, I don't want to on that road so i'm going to protect myself and in, in any way that i can but he was a good guy he was a guy that first said to me if i'm not mistaken you know why don't you do some research you seem to be you know a guy that you know is looking for answers so i did a term paper called the causes and effects of depression and it came out good, and and I learned some stuff. But the problem was, and I didn't realize this until later, is that there wasn't a lot of information. There really wasn't a lot of information, and that fact would later on make me go, would would make me furious. It would the real as I got older in, into my twenties and and stuff like that and beyond. Even more as I got more of a, um, I took, I took an actual real interest in my own uh, psyche. Uh, again, I had done so much to cover it up for so long, and then all of a sudden, you know, cut to the band forming and the band becoming successful. My whole thing is like, oh my god, I can't say anything now. You know, I, I could, maybe I would ruin our success, okay. you know? Number one, I wrote a term paper about, and research I had to do, and this is 20 years after you probably did your term paper, and I had to, I did a paper on uh, have, uh, having a mother with depression, and I, just researching myself, and this is where we need to stop and not have the kids do the work. And really have the resources out there where I'm in the library looking up about schizophrenia and I hear the word depression, looking at and then doing a paper, which I still have today. I have mine somewhere too. I got an A minus. My mother. That was good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I got some, it was some great grade that I I got for it. Like I said, my teacher, uh, I think her name was Mrs. Tiskevich. She's a fellow Polak. She, uh, she was uh, she was really cool. She was cool, and uh, you know, she actually, without me really knowing it, but knowing it, she w- she was very helpful. Well, I read back because I, when I I did all my research of my old journals when I was writing my memoir, and I'm like, how could a teacher not see what I just wrote and just be like, a minus, great vocabulary this I'm like <laughs> exactly i'm fucked up i'd <laughs> say it <laughs> yep no that's true that's really funny you should say that too they they treat it more from a grammatical standpoint yeah. than an actual life or death situation they're like you misspelled this word cool yeah i don't care you misspelled help <laughs> yeah 
right, but then I was saying, so you started this band, which I want to go into this because it's, you know, a great story. And But you were saying how, oh, you can't let anyone know. And when I started Tone It Up and a fitness and a wellness person, I was like, I cannot let anyone know about my past from my mother, her diagnosis, from my drug misuse, any of this. It has to stay hidden. And it wasn't until about five or six years ago where I started talking about it. And then you realize how many people come out of the woodworks and say, thank you for sharing. This is what I've gone through too. And normalizing that conversation. Yes. So how, why did you feel like you had to hide? Oh, because I felt that if I had uh, exposed my true self, no one's going to want to play in a band with me. No one's going to want to be associated with, uh, you know, a lunatic, a crazy person, uh, you know, whatever that that, that we were referred to in general back, back in that day. Again, the stigmas that were were presented and 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 built in the '60s and long before that, but just for me being born in '64, and you know starting to 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 see that you know '69, '70, and and how it worked, and again that coupled with the fact of coming to my own conclusions on my own uh, about why certain you know, events were occurring in my life. And they were all my fault. Then when the molestation happened, that was the one that said, must have been my fault because it happened to me. All of this makes sense now. Your dad left you because you're unlovable. Your brother left you because you're unlovable. These kids attacked you and molested you because you're unlovable. So you're unlovable. So what do you do? You, you sequester yourself. You thankfully find something that offers you a, a, a way to express yourself where you're not being exposed, where you're, you're not telling, hey, this is what happened to me. Like, I'm not writing literal words. Everything is metaphors. And so I'm not getting exposed for what's really going on. I'm just influenced by maybe some of the darker aspects of life. So the keeping the secret was hugely important because I, I was so fearful that it would not allow me to become successful. Well, I'm sure you feel lovable now with your beautiful wife, Tina. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm really, really fortunate. And you know, the big thing, to go to, right along with that is that um, we have uh, two kids, twins, boy and a girl. They're 17 years old and they're just starting college. And so they're my stepchildren. I met them when they just turned six years old. So we've been together for quite a while and we have an amazing, amazing relationship with one another. And I love them because I consider them my own and I will do everything that I can for them without fail. And one of the things is, is being honest. And so going back about five years, uh, four or five years ago, I have, I'm off medication. I've been off for two or three years. Life is amazing. Uh, I've 
lost a bunch of weight, got in great shape. Everything is good. I'm getting my creativity back. Um, Which we've talked about. And a lot of time people do go off medication because it can, like if you're a creative person, like my mom was an artist, you're a musician, you're an artist. And when you're on that medication, it just, you know, it's finding that right cocktail of how you can be a great husband, be a, a great father, be a great musician, and that balance between it all. So you went off it's, in 2019. I was off for a little while. In 2019, I, out of nowhere, had a massive breakdown. Out of nowhere. Uh, I was in an airport in, I think, Phoenix or... Somewhere, Vegas. I mean, I think it was Phoenix. I'm not sure. We were flying somewhere and it just, I felt it when I woke up in the morning and I'm like, oh my God, I haven't felt this in, in a long time. But I've, I've got the tools now. I can I can beat this. And once again, it's your body is stronger than you think. Uh, and Everything was going haywire. My neurotransmitters were going berserk. I'm sure my serotonin was really low. My dopamine's off the charts and all this stuff. And I'm not on meds, so there's nothing to regulate it. And I find myself in a fetal position underneath a, a ticketing agent's desk at a uh, uh, what's called? Uh, gate. At the airport, that's not being used. So I'm there underneath this desk by myself in a fetal position, sobbing my eyes out, calling my wife, going, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know what's happening. She's like, where's the band? I go, I don't know. She's like, describe to me where you're at. She was able to calm me down, but I'm, I'm sobbing. One of my band members finds me. And I'm like, I'm so embarrassed because I've been doing so well. Uh, I was creative again. I I, I looked like me. Um, and then boom. Do you think something like, can you look at what maybe triggers you? Were you going on tour? Were you? We were on tour. On tour. Okay. We were on tour already. And there's stresses obviously that go along with that. But I've always been able to handle them in the past, the, the stresses of touring. So I, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. It might have been a culmination of a bunch of things that I'm not aware of, uh, or maybe I didn't pay attention to, or maybe my ego said, ah, no big deal, you know, which very well could be because, you know, I'm sitting there going, I'm three years off the meds and I've got this thing beat. Well, no, you don't beat it. You know, you manage it, but you don't beat it. So do you, have you created any tools when you feel that I'm just going to give it a name of anxiety. It's, you know, something else going on. Like, you know, it's kind of like things that you can do to help manage. And are you back on the meds then now? Yes, I am. Yeah. I am. Yeah. One of the things, going back real quick to, to that incident, one of the things that happened was um, the band was, we were supposed to go to, to Europe. And the band got me on that flight. And then I was able to find a friend of ours to take my place because I knew I was going to make it to Europe. There's just no way. And so I got home. My wife picked me up and went straight to the emergency room uh, uh, where the psych hospital is. And 
uh, started, they started helping me and, and to get level, if you will. And that took days that took, like I was bedridden at the house for quite a few days, uh, not being able to really speak or anything like that. Very despondent because now the guilt that this happened again, and I thought it was in the fact that my band had to suffer because of it. And then I think the biggest thing was that my wife and my kids had to see this. So that's when we had, uh, when I started feeling better, my wife had a discussion with the kids. And at the time they were around 12. Uh, and when I was able to, I was still in bed. This is probably about five days later. Uh, we all sat down on the bed and we had a conversation and, uh, they were amazing. Like I, I started explaining what it is that, uh, I have, what goes on within me. And it's been there since I was young. And one of the things I, I found it adorable that they asked me, they go, well, can we catch it? Is it contagious? <laughs> And I was, I was, I just started, they put it, the first smile on my face. And I was like, you know what? Thankfully, no, you can't, you can't, but we just want to, you know, we're family. So we need to be honest with one another that this is what I go through. And I, and this is what I'm doing to help it not be uh, something that, has such has such a negative impact on our family. And so that conversation in and of itself was part of the healing. I think it's so important for that. These conversations being like, it's okay. We got you. We are your, we're family. We're a support system. And I've even had, you know, I've been on tour for fitness and 15 cities in 30 days and I learned how to set those boundaries and then I have guilt because I can't do something or show up after a tour stop or but I finally it's important for everyone to hear like if you and, and I'll give an example I was filming workouts for days and then I was supposed to finish filming content and go to the airport here in Austin immediately and fly to an event that my friend Jewel, she's a musician as well, was doing. She works in mental health. I'm sure you know who Jewel is. She's just beautiful soul. And I had this panic attack and I wasn't well. I overworked myself. I didn't, whatever came over me. I also had an allergic reaction to something and I felt so guilty. I canceled on Jewel. And but wow, her response was, Girl, take care of you. I completely understand it. I've had to do it too. I was filming a TV show and I had to stop produ production for a week because of anxiety or whatever. So, we really just need to be there to support each other. It's okay, okay, like it's more not like I can't believe you're canceling on me or this. It's how you know, take your time. How can I support? Um, and you know, it's, yeah, I think well, just, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what would have happened many occasions had my wife not been there for me, had my band members, my, my best friends not been there understanding, 
Yeah, I can remember the the like I when everybody found out, like I told one person about the being molested uh in like 1997 um one person and i swore them to secrecy and didn't speak about it from that point forward until around 1999 like i i lived in this house in jersey uh some of my band members lived there with me uh Luckily, it was it was a big house, so we didn't get in each other's way. But my door was always open, so my friends were always could come over any time of day or night they wanted, and you know it's just the way it was. So one night, and I had been having these these unreal anxiety and panic attacks that were otherworldly. I had never ever had anything like this in my life, and I guess this is around ninety nine. Um, and they had been going on for a while. And I, I, I was always able to hide it from everybody. Uh, but the, I would be, I called it, I could feel them coming on. I called it the black wave. And I knew when it was going to happen. And I knew what was going to happen. And I knew I'd be yelling like this a guttural cry, if you will, out of my soul. And the only way I could describe it was it every time it happened, it felt like someone was ripping my soul out of my chest. It was a very physical, obviously emotional, but a very physical feeling. Like I was like, this is, this is unbearable praying that like, God, just let me stop breathing. You know, like things like that, like unheard of requests. And so one night, I, I would go through three or four a day and I would always be able to, when it was coming on, I'd always be able to make an excuse of, Oh, I got to run down seven 11 and I get my car. I go to seven 11. I park in the back thing and go berserk sobbing, banging my head against the steering wheel, things like that. Excuse me. So one night it's about two o'clock in the morning and I realize I'm having one I'm about to have one. And I go, in my closet in my bedroom, in the corner, on the floor, in a field position, with a holding onto a pillow with a blanket over me, and I'm losing it, and I'm sobbing, and I'm wailing. And one of my friends decided to come over after the bar closed and was looking for me, and he could hear like this whimpers, I guess, and found me. And he's like, What is going on? on and um took me to the hospital took me to the hospital um and then uh i had a horrific experience at the hospital where they put me in a padded room with restraints and it looked like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and there was one window in there with the with the wire, one square window. And I'm like, <clears throat> this just went from bad to worse. Can we just tell hospitals with dealing with mental patients, instead of putting you in a dark room with no windows, maybe nature, tie me to a tree. <laughs> like, so. 
I don't know. Now, I don't have the solution, but I just think of that visual. And I'm like, maybe what you needed at that time was to be sitting at the ocean with a, 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 some, a therapist next to you or something, but putting you in a room like that. And again, not, not an expert here, but if, I, if that happens to me, take me outside. No, I was, I was like, are you kidding me? They're like, we want to keep you here for 72 hours. I'm like, I'm not staying 72 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Like, you want me to stay here for 72 hours? You just made this worse. Yeah. Like, yeah. you're going to strap me down on this table? Like, really? Like, that? I'm supposed to feel better about where I am now? I'm, like, ready to just off myself in front of you. So that's when it started coming out, though. That's like when people started going, uh-oh. And my weight loss was very, very dramatic. Um, I was seeing a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I was seeing a psychiatrist down in Philadelphia as well as a therapist. They were both great. Uh, and then I was kind of going back and forth with this whole thing, going to different, the psychiatrist down in, in Philly prescribed me some stuff, but it didn't work. I went to a psychiatrist in Jersey, a couple. They prescribed me some stuff and went Depakote and, and Paxil and stuff like that. And that would work for a short period of time, then stop, and it, got, it felt worse. <clears throat> but none of these people, with the exception of the woman in, in Philly, would have any conversations with me. They would just, it would be a 10-minute. Oh, yeah quick interview all right here you go oh yeah here's oh, here's a text or lithium and yeah and so what your health insurance covers is 10 minutes with the doctor and then a prescription well what happened is so after that incident i'm like you know what screw this i had a bottle of clonopin and i said i'm in the house by myself everybody else is is off doing whatever i'm going I'm done. Chug that bottle of Klonopin, take a big swig of, uh, uh, I think I was drinking uh, like vodka and Dr. Pepper or, or Jack and Dr. Pepper, something like that. Take a big swig of it. And I realized immediately, I go, dude, you just crossed that threshold, man. Like you just crossed that friggin' threshold. And I immediately like made myself throw up and vomited and blah, and now I'm panicking. Now like there's you know stuff everywhere. Luck it was instantaneous. It was like down, crazy up. So then I'm like I call up one of my best buddies, Mike, and so he's aware now what's been going on as are uh, my band members and stuff like that. But still, no one knows about the the abuse. Still haven't, and one person does. And so I call up Mike, and Mike goes, I've got to call your doctor, and calls the doctor down in Philly. And she goes, she used to work at a place called Friends Hospital down in Philadelphia that was uh, had a, a unit for, for psych patients, if you will. And so he brought me down there, and they checked me in, and, and I spent weeks down there and i couldn't believe what i saw there i was like this is just making it worse it's just making it worse uh you know how the insurance companies uh were basically predicated how long a person could stay there 
Like I, 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 it was unbelievable to me. And so of course, in an effort to take the onus off of me and my own care, I become the advocate again. I'm going to be an advocate for the other people in here who can't be an advocate for themselves. I'm going to stand up for them because they're getting, they're getting nothing. They're getting nothing. The nurse ratchet has these group meetings that get nothing accomplished. I call her out on it all the time. Now I'm becoming troublesome. So I'm, they're trying to get rid of me. And I go, you can't get rid of me because I'm paying my own way. I'm not going through insurance, but you can't get rid of me. And so raising a stink, I'm raising a stink because it's very disturbing to me. Again, not getting help for myself at all. Uh, the one thing that sent me over the top was there was a girl in there in her early 20s. And they they had you had wristbands that were different colors that basically were indicators of how severe you are at not, that moment. Yeah. Right. So she had a red one. She gets notice. I see I noticed her 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 parents came and, and that was kind of odd. And she gets uh, notified, the parents do, that they need to remove her from the facility because the insurance company said, mm-hmm. They're gone. She's, yeah, we're done. She's had enough time. She should be fine. I'm going, oh, this girl is any. So then I watch her. When she finds this out, she's crying. I watch her go over to the nurse's desk, and there's a paper clip that's about this big, thick one. She opens it up and she goes right into her arm and pulls it all the way up to her elbow spot on the inside of her arm. And I was like, oh, my God. And, of course, medics and everything come there. They still made her go home. I wonder where she's at today. I mean, I know when, I think I mentioned this to you before, when my mom had a stroke and she was in Washington and I you know, became her caretaker to move her to California. And I tried to talk to the doctors. I mean, she was there for three months and was talking about her mental health. And they're like, oh, we don't deal with mental health. I'm like, no, like you can't. And they were like, insurance is done. We can't send her home. I'm like, my mom has a physical condition where she needs four blood transfusions a week. She lives an hour from any hospital. She can't drive. Like you are sending someone home to die. And so I you have to really learn to be an advocate for yourself. And then the fact that they don't connect mental health with physical health because we are, it's aligned. What goes on in your brain affects your body. And and then it's like, and then a lot of health insurance companies don't cover therapy. And that's why with Big Silence Foundation, that's one of our largest programs is therapy for all, where we are trying, you know, we have 50 therapists that can, you know, we can connect you with. It's just, it's unheard of how s- still our, uh, they haven't connected the dots. Like, why do you think, sorry, I'm going to go on a tangent, but like, why do you think cancer happens? Ex- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Not to interrupt you. You're absolutely right, though. The stigma still exists, and that's the whole idea. Like, I love what you're doing, and the idea of what your show is, what your podcast is, is is so true because 
the the big silence is what what makes this thing uh become perpetual by by not having conversations by not disclosing and and uh, uh information and for educational purposes and and for treatment and it's just it's, it's so sad because so many people suffer in silence and uh it's it's tragic i look i i did it i well, get it i mean i'm proud of you for talking about it cuz i um, till my mom's last day she was afraid of the stigma my mom was not a physically dangerous person. She knew her illness, but she was afraid to get on prescriptions because of the stigma. She, you know, and then also figuring out, like we talked earlier, like that cocktail of what works for you, what doesn't. And it's a lot of work, but then also having a support system and it's, it's, it's tough, but that's, you know, having community around you and even like, silence and talking to women and men and talking about it and building that community where it's okay to not be okay. That's fine. And I mean, look, for you, I want to talk a little bit more about Skid Row too, because you've been able to turn, you know, your your superpower into poetry that becomes music. And you heal so many people. That's very sweet. You heal so many people through just performing and music not only heals you, but your audience as well. So that's amazing. Wow. Um, I know you're going Thank on you. tour. Yeah, of course. I'm serious. And I appreciate that. And uh, there's probably so many people in your audience that are like, I need to hear these lyrics. I need to just have fun. I need to dance. I need to whatever, you know. And you're going on tour. Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, and um, I, it's always, <laughs> I love like the, the, the joy that I get <clears throat> out of playing in front of people and making that connection with the audience is uh, so profound. And uh, it's very difficult. It's different for everybody um, because it's an interpersonal interaction. And, and so it has a different effect on everybody for me. And I, I think I can speak for my band members too. It's like when you see the joy that you're participating in with a group of people who you don't know, and you only know each other through the music that you've created and whatever's been written about you and, and things like that, but mainly through the music that you've created. Um, and to be able to sit there and have some sort of... Uh, connection with them is I never realized how important that was um, to people until it happened to me when I was an audience member. That's when it, it had the, that's what made me become a musician because I went to see kiss in Madison square garden. I was 13 years old and I walked out of there going, man, I want to do that for a living. What that was, I didn't know. I just wanted that. I saw that spectacle uh, that was just larger than life. And then the way the audience was going berserk for what they were doing. And I'm like, that's just, that's absolutely, that's magical. 
Like, it's magical. Like, I've never seen anything like that before. Like, you go to a baseball game or something like that, and, yeah, the fans are into it and stuff like that. But it's not sustained over the course of two hours uh, continuously, and those people still wanting more. You know, you go to a baseball game, the game's over, you go home, and, you, you know, you, but you leave because you're like, man, I don't want to leave. Oh. Or... Baseball or, or, games are way too long, in my opinion. But my <laughs> <laughs> ones that are over. <laughs> but right, right, right. I'm not a big baseball fan. <laughs> but so, uh, but I yeah, concerts are like no, no, no more. I mean, imagine like think about for you and I know for myself how music has gotten me through some really heavy times. Through I mean, I there's an artist Dermot Kennedy. I don't know if you know who that is, uh, Irish artist and singer-songwriter. And he just, he was my healing through my mom's passing. And my husband knows that. I just played Dermot. Like, it's so deep. It's so connecting. It's like someone feels what you're feeling. Um, Yeah, music is therapy. Music is healing. Without a doubt. I I find that it's, uh, it, for me, it changes all the time. Um, I'll come across stuff that I used to listen to as a kid that all of a sudden will have new meaning. Um, happens a lot with, with Motown. Happens a lot with the Jackson 5, believe it or not. Uh, uh, it happens with uh, rediscovering even old metal albums like the first or second Iron Maiden album where I'll be like, oh my God, that's right. And, you know, and... I'll remember all the good that is associated with the memory of that of that record from when I was 16 or whatever. And it it's funny how the 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 music that we we gravitate to just brings us to a better place. And then that's what it should do. Um yeah, I, was, I, I feel like for me, it's like if I hear Nirvana or Pearl Jam now, I'm like, it takes me back to when I was a teenager and in such a dark place. And then I, it actually now makes me proud of myself. I'm like, yeah. I'm, and I'm like, look how far you've come, girl. Well, it's it. funny how music can help you find the good in yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very rare that you listen to a piece of music and you go, wow, I feel like a bigger piece of shit than I did before <laughs> I listened to that. You know, it's pretty rare. Yeah. <laughs> I've never experienced that. <laughs> no, I might shed a tear, but it's because it makes you feel. It brings you back or it brings you present or it just makes you, or it can be a good vibe or like makes you smile. I love music. Yeah, I, I you know, it's, it, what's interesting, and, and this is kind of on topic, I guess. When we were in... Uh, 1989, August of 89, we were doing a, this big show called the Moscow Music Peace Festival in Mo, in Russia. And it was uh, Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and Ozzy and Skid Row and Cinderella, um, Scorpions. And so we all were flying on this giant plane starting in California to New Jersey to London, uh, I believe to Germany and then to Moscow. And we happen to be going, we were, again, this is 89. This is the end of the Cold War or the beginning of the end, if you will. And so things were changing and and we're 25-year-old kids. We were like, we were taught, these are the bad guys. They're the devil. 
You know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And get there, and the people are amazing. The people are great. It's like, okay, the people are great. So where where's all the bad guys at, right? So, okay, we come to find out later that the bad guys aren't the people. The bad guys are the politicians, right? So, by and large. So, we uh, a group of people were walking through Red Square. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And there happens to be a young Russian guy with an acoustic guitar, kind of like you'd see on the you know streets of Los Angeles or New York City, uh, playing for change and monetary change, you know, like you know, nickels and dimes. And he uh, he's sitting there playing "Yesterday" by the Beatles, and he makes we make brief eye contact. And all of a sudden it hit me. I'm like, this guy doesn't speak a word of English, but he's singing a Beatles song in English to a group of people like from the United States or the UK that have never been there before. And he's profoundly touching each and every one of us through this three-minute song. And that's how I went, and I'm doing the right thing. Like, I'm involved in music, and music is like the ultimate communicator, and it supersedes all these barriers that we have in our our, our lives and our world, whether it's uh, religious or uh, philosophical or political or geographical. Um, it supersedes all of that. It, it and that was it was. I'll never forget i picture it perfectly uh that moment i'm like wow what an amazing thing you know and then it's no wonder why why music is used as uh treatment to help you know autistic children and whatnot and and the, the healing effects that it has because it really does um touch upon something physiological within us that we haven't been able to pinpoint yet. I mean, I guess we can't have it, you know, how it affects your serotonin and your dopamine and things like that, and how it helps with the production of that in a good way. And uh, but it's just incredible that you know that uh, on a very simple level, that someone singing a beautiful melody with beautiful lyrics can have such a profound effect on on you know a kid from New Jersey and. Probably, you know, a bazillion others. Yeah, that's true. So you're headed out on tour and I'm going to put in the show notes where you can all your tour stops. But I know that tour can also cause a bit of anxiety and it's a big thing. So what are you planning? And maybe you haven't thought of this. What are you going to do for you to make sure that you feel good on tour and have boundaries or take care of yourself? Well, for me, it's I do a lot of reading on tour. That helps out a lot. Um, keeps me engaged uh, in something other than the immediate moment at hand, if you will. There's always, I mean, t- touring with your friends is amazing, but there's always moments where there's going to be some sort of uh, turmoil, if you will. <laughs> you know, some sort of fires that need to be put out. That's the nature of a business. Um, but my main thing for me is is to always be aware if I feel it coming, 
like uh, that black wave, which has subsided quite a bit since I've been back on meds and, and things like that. But if I do feel it coming, I know a couple of things. I know that it's not going to kill me. That's number one. Number two is it's only going to last about 15, 20 minutes. It's not going to last the whole day. It's not going to last a week. It's not going to last a lifetime. It's going to come. It's going to have its moment. And it's going to go. And so if I'm confident in that, which I am, I'm able to sit there and, and prepare myself for this little or big bump in the road. And there's no more for me. And, and, and the meds have a lot to do with this. There's no more like howling and, and feeling like the soul is being ripped out of me. It's an anxiety that is definitely manageable and, and a panic that is definitely manageable now where it once wasn't. Um, and so that in and of itself gives me the confidence to know I can withstand it. Having that confidence helps you to get through it quicker and to have it be less uh, frequent. Yeah. Just knowing like even, I don't know if you have a meditation practice or not, but even just learning breath work or learning to breathe or getting in touch with your body or grounding or in, you know, in your mind saying, I am safe. I am safe. Yeah. I have things that make me feel safe. Things that, you know, the, the certain things like, you know, always being able to be in contact with my family, which wasn't always the case back in the day, you know, thankfully for, you know, FaceTime and cell phones and whatnot, your, your family is, is right there for you at, at a, you know, moment's notice. That's huge. For me. That is absolutely huge because uh, I can get on a phone with my wife and she'll immediately know if something's going on. I'll, I'll, I'll like old habits die hard. So I'll sit there and try to hide it. And she'll go, now what's going on? Let's talk about it. We talk about it. And it helps amazingly because it's like, okay, you're, you're getting rid of that negative energy into the universe. You're, and you're allowing space to, uh, for positive, positivity to inhabit yeah no it's good to have your people that know you so well and my husband is so amazing um and then i have two friends brothers shout out to jeremy and shane they're like my best friends and they were always there for each other no matter what so that's like the guys in my band like yeah. rachel who i started the band with is gosh our our, our friendship and our brotherhood is 36 years old and so, and again, ironically, he's the one who found me uh, on my second suicide attempt. And he's the one that called 911 and got me on the gurney and got me in, you know, into uh, to the hospital, into the emergency room. Because the second time I did it was that that was the real one. That was I was done. And uh, oddly enough, he was living on the other side of, the, of my house and he had a separate uh, a staircase that he would come down to go to the main floor and go into the kitchen. And then there was a, a, a walkway upstairs that was like, I don't know, 40 yards long or whatever. And you, you, that would be my side of the house. He would walk over and every night he'd walk or every morning he'd walk down that specific staircase. And that one morning he decided to walk across the top and he saw my door open a little so he opened up a little bit more, saw the empty pill bottles on the floor, saw my eyes roll back in my head. 
and he went to work and I'm forever indebted to him. That's yeah. I mean, that was what was meant to be, you know? And then, you know, yeah. And then, you know, like with the, when I had the the breakdown on the road, you know, my wife uh, and, and my kids, my wife was like, all right, this is what we have to do. She didn't panic. She just said, she laid it out. Let's get you home. And from home, we're going to go here. And we're going to meet with this. She had it all set up. And then we're going to go to your, uh, your general practitioner and let them know what's going on. And everybody was well-informed uh, before I got there. And I was embarrassed. I got to be honest. I was embarrassed because I, again, it came out of nowhere. And I, I, I had that that uh feeling that i had beaten this thing and and i realized that you don't beat it you know you you manage it that's just the way it is and uh which is fine i've come to accept that and understand that as that i've accepted it now it gives me even stronger tools to manage it yeah well, you're doing great, in my opinion, my non-professional opinion. And I perhaps I'll see you in Dallas and talk to my husband a couple times about that. Um, yeah, you guys are more than welcome. It would be great for you guys to be there. Yeah, I'm going to check out the rest of your tour schedule as well and see where else you are. We'll put all of that schedule in the show notes. Thank and, you. Um, it's been so nice getting to know you. Well, the pleasure is all mine. And I, I appreciate you sharing your story with me too um, yesterday and, and the fact that uh, you've decided to take something tragic and turn it into something extremely positive. And hopefully that all the positive work you're doing is infectious to uh, other people. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love, the type of love that will defeat anxiety, the type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in, to be who you already are. The Big Silence. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. The Big Silence. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. The Big Silence.